From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, January 19th, and we are glad to have you along today as we make sense of Vermont and the world around us in our week in review. So much to get to today on our Friday show, four days out from the New Hampshire presidential primary. And uh, I think it's uh, sort of, it's the last ditch effort, I think, of uh, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, to try to make a dent in the armor of uh, former President Donald Trump, who seems to have this thing locked up. Uh, and she, she did this week what all campaign managers uh, fear, which is she actually talked about a serious issue. And uh, some people will say she made a mistake. Some people will say she didn't. That's not really the question. Uh, she, she talked about, she was asked by uh, Jake Tapper, the journalist uh, at a town hall, whether she thought America was a racist country. Uh, and she said no, and then talked about her upbringing in South Carolina and how she faced personal racism, but that her parents never said to her that there was racism in America. And uh, it, it, regardless of what you think about that issue, uh, for a candidate, running for president in a state where she needs moderates and uh, Democrats. I, I understand there are 4,000 Democrats who have registered to vote in that primary. Uh, she needs those people. And uh, if, if nothing else, that issue to me seems a diversion for Haley. Uh, but there's no avoiding it. Uh, he asked the question, she had to answer it. So uh, that was a fascinating diversion from, I, I bet she didn't want to have to deal with that question. New Hampshire primary coming up Tuesday. Uh, today on the show, we start with state revenues and the budget. Uh, it's, it's I, I, I can I can tell, uh, you know, it's the most exciting story of the week. But the issue made some news when state economists reported to the legislature this week about the strength of uh, budget revenues. Then it's to the issue of refugees from Afghanistan coming to Vermont. There are hundreds of them uh, that have come here from that war-torn country. The executive director of a new nonprofit helping them to come here and live here will join us. Her name is Molly Gray. Then it's to Washington to talk with our D.C. correspondent, Bob Nay, about all things Washington. We'll get into it with him. And at 1015, Allison Novak from Seven Days is going to join us to talk about a new class at Montpelier High School on how to be a better man. And I'll be listening to that closely. At 1030, I'll take your calls. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about at 1030 is Bernie Sanders and the war in Israel and Hamas. He uh, Sanders proposed a resolution on the floor of the Senate this week that was defeated, but it was fascinating in its complexity uh, and simplicity at the same time. Um, and we're going to get into that. But we take your calls at 244-1777, uh, especially at 1030. We'll open the phones. Send me your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Again, 244-1777. We'll open the phones. 
Uh, but first, did you see the story about state revenues this week? I know, very exciting. Um, you'll remember that the governor promised in his State of the State address a couple of weeks ago that he will propose a budget with 3% growth uh, that, and, and, and accompanied with a warning to the legislature that the state budget is tight and that uh, they should not be thinking about uh, spending lots of money. Um, and then his economic advisor, Jeff Carr, told a panel of high-ranking lawmakers, that's the House Ways and Means Committee, the Senate Finance Committee and the two appropriations committees, um, they said, uh, we have no recession in the forecast. That's according to Jeff Carr, who told said that to the panel. Emily Kornheiser, who's the chair of the Senate, uh, House Ways and Means Committee, she's a rep from Brattleboro, said, thank you for saying that so bluntly. Now, that's code in political speak. Uh, Kornheiser is one of the more liberal members of the legislature, and she is always looking to figure out a way uh, to spend more money on social programs. Um, she did a child care proposal last year. She's always looking to do paid family leave and find other ways. Uh, for instance, the, home, the, uh, the, ho the motel housing program, which is set to expire again this year. She's always looking to spend money on those kinds of things. The governor is trying to hold the line on that. And his uh, economist and the economist for the legislature uh, came before the legislature and said, there's going to be, basically, there's going to be plenty of money. Uh, Jeff Carr and uh, legislature's uh, economist Tom Kivett presented their updated state revenue forecast to the state's emergency board which is a panel comprised of the legislature's key money committee chairs, as well as the governor, uh, that kicks off the budget writing process for the state for, for the state legislature each year. Until Thursday, lawmakers had been breaking, this is according to Vermont Digger, uh, had been bracing for sour news, uh, epic, unprecedented, off-the-charts influx of federal cash well, um, around the pandemic bolstered state revenues. But lawmakers knew those reserves were due to dry up, and they fretted that the state's come down would be harsh. But according to Carr and Covet, Vermont's economy over the past year has, quote, exhibited surprising economic resilience. Unemployment rates remain low. Inflation persists but has slowed, and the stock market is performing well, they wrote in their report. Uh, two of the state's Three major pots of revenue are performing well, according to the two economists. Bolstering the general fund were strong personal income tax receipts. And for the education fund, robust, in their words, consumer spending and higher than expected cannabis sales have lined the state's coffers. So uh, a, a somewhat rosy uh, uh, analysis from the two economists. And uh, that kind of sets up the legislature to be in something of a conflict with the governor. We'll see where that goes. When we come back, we're going to talk about Afghan refugees coming to this country, and we welcome in the executive director of the Vermont Afghan Alliance. All that and more when we come back. You are listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. 
We are back, and we are joined by our first guest today, who is uh, the executive director of a new nonprofit dedicated to helping Afghan refugees on their journey here. When the United States left Afghanistan, thousands of Afghans who helped the United States in its military and diplomatic mission were suddenly left at the mercy of the dreaded Taliban. Hundreds have been evacuated to Vermont, far from all they have known. And we have the executive director of the Vermont Afghan Alliance here with us today. Her name is Molly Gray. You may recognize that name. Yes, she's the executive director of the VAA, but you might also know her as the former lieutenant governor of Vermont, a candidate for Congress, born and raised in Newberry, graduate of Vermont Law School and UVM. She brings international human rights and legal experience to this job. She's been all over the world worked for uh, Senator Peter Welch, now living in Burlington, recently married, new baby, and she joins us now. Welcome, Molly Gray, to the show. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be on. Okay. Tell us about the Vermont Afghan Alliance and what's the mission. Absolutely. Well, per your introduction, as many Vermonters may know, we are now, as a state, home to more than 300 Afghans from all parts of the country, Uh, Afghans who worked for the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, uh, who worked for the U.S. Embassy, uh, with the U.S. military, sometimes as interpreters, and also, in some instances, with international organizations. Uh, The population that's here, now calling Vermont home, has resettled not just in the Burlington and greater Burlington area, but actually in communities across the state, Montpelier, St. Albans, Rutland, Bennington, Brattleboro. Um, And the needs are tremendous. The alliance was started by a man named Wazir Hashimi, who grew up in Afghanistan, but spent almost 10 years in Vermont going to school, starting a life here. His intention was always to go back to Afghanistan, but he arrived back there the summer of 2021, just before the Taliban took over, and quickly returned to Vermont, and then connected with a man named Dan Barkoff, a former Navy SEAL and uh, ER doc at UVM Medical Center. They launched the alliance as an effort to help Afghans arriving in the state Um, survive and thrive here, uh, not to replace the resettlement efforts of organizations, but to help with the other basic needs, most importantly, driving lessons, which, as we all know, if you don't have a car, you can't get to work, you can't get to the store, you can't bring your kids to school in a place like Vermont. So it started as a uh, driving lessons nonprofit, but we've been very fortunate um, over the last, gosh, it's been a whirlwind, I guess, six to nine months. Uh, I came on board to help build the infrastructure of the organization. I care deeply about the work. I care deeply about our newest Vermonters in the Afghan community. Uh, We applied for a couple of grants. We're very successful in being awarded the grants. And now I've expanded our mission to include employment assistance, a full-time driving program. Uh, We'll be launching a legal rights training program, helping with Uh, community engagement and forums, and now we have a staff and office, and um, the plane is in the air, as they say. It's not fully built, built, but we're working hard and trying to do everything we can to support this incredible community. So, Molly, this cannot be uh, easy, Uh, and I've seen some of these families in Montpelier, where I live, uh, 
you know, driving, housing, uh, a new diet, um, completely new cultural norms. Um, talk to us about some of the realities that Afghans face when they arrive here. It's, it's such an important question. Uh, I, I honestly, it's hard to know where to start. I guess I ask listeners and everyone to imagine what it would be like to have the United States uh, occupying your country for, let's say, 21 years, right? That's how long the U.S. was in Afghanistan. And then uh, with a snap of a finger, uh, a very fast withdrawal, families separated, families some family members fleeing to Pakistan or outside of Afghanistan, some hiding within Afghanistan, some being able to get on uh, evacuation flight, and then essentially being parachuted into a place like Vermont. We have one staff member who joked with me that he thought he was parachuted into the jungle, essentially, right? I mean, it's, uh, and while we are an incredibly, I believe, a welcoming and inclusive state, we have work to do, of course. There's still a tremendous amount of challenges and need, right? And we talked about the driving program, which we run. Uh, driving lessons and getting into vehicles is extremely important. Uh, employment is extremely important, which is another program that we've just launched, an Afghan employment program, to help make sure that Afghans who have a diversity of skills, be it as doctors or engineers or interpreters of the U.S. Army, or even have a strong security background, can access all of the good-paying jobs that we have in the state. But yes, there's all the things that we, um, as Vermonters, deal with every single day, trying to navigate a healthcare system and insurance and buying a car and paying for rent, um, things that are complicated as it is when you speak the language and you're trying to navigate life, but now uh, much, much, much more challenging for Afghans arriving here who are still every day now, two and a half years later, separated from family members, um, navigating complicated immigration status with an immigration system that hasn't been fixed for this community. So the needs are real and they're the daily existence. The world has moved on, but Vermont cannot from Afghanistan. Molly, I remember when you, you talk about uh, Vermont being a welcoming place, uh, and we have much to work on. I, I want to get to that hard issue. I remember when uh, three Syrian families were resettled here in Vermont, I believe three of them in Rutland, and there was resistance in Rutland to their arrival. Uh, and the argument was, oh, they're going to require, uh, you know, a, a state uh, uh, assistance and they're going to be a burden on the school system. And uh, we can't, you know, we have to take care of the people who are already here. I can imagine people making that same argument in this case. I guess the question is, why do, should we in Vermont take these refugees? What's the, what's the, you know, why is it on us to do that? First, I believe we have a moral obligation these are individuals who worked hand-in-hand hand with the U.S. government, uh, in many cases for almost two decades, right? They saved American lives. They assisted in the U.S. operation in Afghanistan. So morally, we have an obligation. Additionally, and 
the the economic cases there for our state. It's one I hesitate to make, but let's just get into the facts. We are an aging state. We have a demographic crisis. You name the position, right? <laughs> Nurse, dentist, doctor, engineer. Uh, we have openings. And why would we not welcome a highly skilled community that is ready to fill those jobs? Um, what I've experienced in the last six to eight months working in this position is that the Afghan community has hit the ground money in terms of getting into all sorts of positions. Sometimes they're not the best positions because they're a, it's a factory job, yet someone has an engineering degree. Or they're working at JCPenney, yet they're a doctor. They were a doctor in Afghanistan. So I think the, the, the benefit for us as a state is we have a population that is ready to help the state thrive, uh, wants to be here, and it's incumbent upon us to make that successful. And I'm seeing it. I think there's a tremendous number of small nonprofits, community-based nonprofits, CV RAN, as you know, in, in Montpelier, that are doing incredible work to help the state with resettlement in the way that we are as well. Um, I think it's exciting, and it's a lot, a lot to be proud of. Yeah, it's it's you make the moral case, and and you're right, and and then the economic one. Uh, I had Betsy Bishop from the Vermont Chamber on the show earlier this week, and she said that national life in Vermont has two thousand job openings. Now, I I was that was shocking to me. Um, I, maybe I've got that number wrong, but she went kind of went down the list of the job openings that exist in our state. And granted, uh, an Afghan just arriving is not going to be able to walk up to national life and work at a $85,000 a year job, but they can start somewhere and eventually end up at a place like national life, right? Absolutely. Um, but there's all sorts of jobs out there. I mean, there's a tremendous need for CDL drivers. Um there's all sorts of carpentry uh, positions. There's plumbers, electricians. There's a lot of support right now for vocational training, which I think is wonderful. Uh, I would say the biggest, biggest challenge, though, and it's one that maybe your listeners will roll your eyes or we're all not in agreement and say, yes, yes, we know this. Um, it's housing because it's if you don't have a place to live, uh, it's the first step, right? How are you able to truly put your roots down in a community? And it's not something that we as an organization are uh, focused on, um, but it's one that we're certainly communicating with the state about. And there needs to be more housing available to this community. Um, I mean, every community, but this community in particular, if they're really going to thrive here. You know, I'll give you an example that you probably know about. Uh, I'm involved with Downstreet Housing and uh, in Barrie. And about a year and a half ago, I got a call from Steve Klein, who used to be the head of the Joint Fiscal Office at the legislature, and I've known him for a long time. And out of the blue, he starts talking to me about Afghan families who have arrived here and need housing. And he, in his inimitable way, said that I had an obligation to provide uh, these folks housing. And I said, well, we're, God, I don't think we're really set up to do that. Well, lo and behold, a year and a half later, we are housing these people. And it's one of the more eye-opening experiences that I've had from 
our end of the spectrum. But it was fascinating to see a guy like Steve uh, Klein, who I had thought was just really a guy who focused on the state budget and, and the legislature, suddenly come to life in retirement uh, when it comes to helping people who have just arrived in our state, uh, having left their family and their country. And it was a real eye-opener for me. That's amazing. Yeah, Steve's done tremendous work, and I think there are countless others that I run into every day in this job. And I, some people say, well, Molly, why are you doing this? Like, what is this about? And I... That, I that was my next that. question. Right? What is this about? Why are you doing this? And I, well, one, I believe I have a skill set and the energy, and we are all on the bridge somewhere, right, between the this virtual bridge between Afghanistan and Vermont, and we all have some skill or something to offer. And we talk about that in the office. This organization will be led by the Afghan community. There's three amazing Afghan program officers, each with their own experiences, helping to run the organization right now. We talk about that. Where are we? What do we have to offer? How does our team work? But I, I believe the same is true for the state and our communities. The second is a point around hospitality. In Afghan culture, hospitality is everything. When someone comes into your home, I've learned, I mean, you give them everything you have to make them feel comfortable and welcome, and you do that without expectation. And Vermont is my home. Vermont is your home. Vermont is the home of the listeners today. And when I imagine welcoming someone into our home and not providing them food or a place to sleep, um, that's really embarrassing, right? That's not our spirit as Vermonters. But if I think about it through the lens of hospitality in the African culture, it's even worse. And so, again, it comes back to the moral piece. But I also think there's just so many benefits for us as a state. And it it really um, it's really so inspiring to see our communities stepping forward, using their skills, and helping this amazing um, population uh, thrive here. And it's going to take time, and it is going to be hard, and it, it still is every day, but it's well worth it. Uh, Molly, we have to take a break, but in, before we go, uh, and we'll come back with you and talk more about this, uh, what other challenges do they face uh, besides driving, uh, what, give us more of their experience when they first arrive. Sure. When the when someone first arrives, they generally go through USCRI or ECDC. They're two designated resettlement agencies, and it's kind of like an emergency landing. I like to use lots of plane analogies and flying analogies, but emergency landing support, right? It's immediate quick housing, which sometimes is at a hotel right? Temporary hotel until something else is found. Um, quick placement in a job, oftentimes a factory job because it's like, let's get some money going now. But oftentimes the, the job isn't the one that's best suited for the person based on their skill set. Sometimes there's a, some initial support, support with English language lessons, but that doesn't always continue. So our job, and I see the biggest challenge is what's next? Um, helping them get into a good job that is the right fit for the skill set, which means finding a network of Vermont employers, and this is a call to listeners, if you're an employer, that is open to hiring members of the Afghan community, 
um, reach out to us at info at um, vermontafghanalliance.org or go to our website, send me an email. We want to hear from you and we'd love to meet with you to talk about what we can do to help make that successful. Molly, could we talk just a little bit more about the the difference between what Afghans who are resettling here, uh, what they live like back home versus what they are facing here? It is truly a different society. Definitely is. Um, and I should, I guess, mention I started with the organization part-time in April and then was on some maternity leave, uh, came back in October. So it's been, as I said, just, gosh, six six or so, almost nine months and quite a whirlwind, but a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'll say that whatever I thought I knew and whatever I thought I understood about Afghanistan and the experience of the Afghan community, I've had to throw all of that out the window and just take a step back and listen and learn and try each day to better understand Um, little things just around um, food and um, this is a community that doesn't drink and doesn't smoke and doesn't do drugs. This is a community that generally in the past would be off on Fridays, um, not used to working on Fridays. And so there's a different hours of the week, uh, a extremely hardworking community, a community that, um, again, for almost 21 years, had the U.S. government deeply ingrained in uh, life in Afghanistan. Um, And I think were sold the promise of democracy, sold the promise of um, many American U.S. ideals. And then to arrive, I would say, in, in the United States and kind of learning, learning about the complexities of democracy, learning about the complexities of our political system, um, trying to understand just how daily life works, which isn't, you know, isn't the same. Um, And I think that for better or worse, mostly, unfortunately, in this case, for worse, there were some bad habits. The U.S. brought a lot of um, kind of money and support to Afghanistan that wasn't always implemented well. And so trying to make sure that we as an organization are um, helping as much as we can with all all aspects of daily life. And just there's so much uh, explanation and, and communication and training that's happening, not only here in the office day to day, but just as an organization as we engage the community. Um, and also trying to ensure that the community stays connected through cultural events, through uh, Nauru's, which is upcoming Persian New Year in March, through Eid, um, that cultural traditions are respected and facilitated and supported as life begins here. Molly, how, how many Afghans are actually here? Roughly 300. It's hard to know precisely because what we have some some people leave, um, go to a different state where they may have family relations or friends or connections. Others are moving to Vermont because the word is out that there is a growing Afghan community, that there are good jobs here, right? Which is a we welcome that as a state. We welcome that certainly as an organization. We welcome that. The heartbreak is that 
there are fathers, husbands, um, many men here who have been separated from their families for two and a half years. There's moms who are here with kids on their own um, who have been separated from their families. And depending on someone's immigration status, some people were immediately provided a a green card, uh, essentially. Others had to come here and apply for asylum as humanitarian parolees, a a terrible term, uh, an unfortunate label, one that needs to be reformed. And the asylum process takes years. Um, And until asylum is granted, they can't petition to have family come. And then there's uh, what's called P1 or P2 status, which is a, a traditional refugee process. And each designation comes with different um, kind of different opportunities for family to come. And what I do believe we'll see in the year ahead is family members finally coming to Vermont and reunification happening. So we need to be ready for that. We talk a lot about that in the office. I'm helping to prepare for family reunification. Uh, So I think we'll see the population grow slowly over the coming year. And Molly, what can we do uh, individually and collectively in our communities to make this transition easier? I was hoping you'd ask that question. There are a number of things. First, certainly as a small nonprofit that's just getting off the ground, as I said, we were very fortunate to receive a federal and state grant to open a small office, but uh, we're still getting furniture. You know, if, if folks are have old office furniture and they want to make a donation, we accept desks and chairs, uh, you name it. Um, we are driving program. We're always looking for folks who want to chip in $50, $100 for a tank of gas or help with a commercial car insurance payment. And that's a huge help to keep things on the road. And you can go to our website or send me an email. Um, if you're interested in volunteering, and volunteering could be helping to drive someone to a doctor's appointment, um, helping to just answer questions around day-to-day life, um, setting up a bank account, uh, setting up a financial plan, um, helping with just basic English language lessons. All of those things are tremendously important. I also think just if you're at the grocery store and uh, you meet someone from the Afghan community, just say welcome. You know, how are you doing? Um, how how are you adjusting to life here? Um, uh, a meal is always a wonderful thing to offer. A cup of tea, um, inviting someone to your home, thinking about what I've shared around hospitality and just how important it is for us to welcome this incredible community um, to our special, special state. So um, that's what I've got for you today, but there, there's always something. So if none of, the, none of those things ring um, interesting for listeners, give me a call or reach out because we always have uh, ways to get involved. And where can, where can we find you? Uh, give us a website and an email address so we can. Sure. You. Uh, you can go to vermontafghanalliance.org and the email would be info at vtafghanalliance.org. Okay, and I cannot let you go, and I know you have an appointment, an all-important appointment, uh, and you have to leave us a little early. I can't let you go because I'm getting several texts from listeners saying, is she going to run for elected office again, or is this a a permanent diversion from electoral office? (laughs) No, there's no permanent diversion, and I... 
I what I do know is that I love working for Vermont. I feel so reaffirmed in that position. I loved serving as Vermont's lieutenant governor. I hope that someday there will be a path back, but it's always about timing. And right now, I feel so committed to this community, and I see this as part of public service. I see this as as part of getting up every day, trying to solve problems, trying to make our state better, trying to help this community thrive here. And I'm loving it. So um, I thank you for the question. And, and yeah, just delighted. I feel it's an honor. It's an honor to be able to do this work. You know, last question before we let you go. This uh, seems to be in your blood. And I wonder if this international work uh, this is not your first foray into helping those uh, who are coming here. Talk to us just a little bit about your experience in other countries before you were lieutenant governor. You have quite a resume. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Previously, I grew up in Orange County. I think you know that and folks know that and um, have always had an interest in the world, and I think a lot of Vermonters do. We're global thinkers. I worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross when I was working in Washington and working for for Peter Welch as well, and had an opportunity to really, I guess, ingrain in myself and this belief that we have to treat people with respect, and we need to focus on our common humanity and meeting basic human need. And I guess what I now know for sure is that you can be a fierce Vermonter, right? You can love the state through and through and through, and you can also be an internationalist and person of the world and want to help and make Vermont a place that's welcoming um, to the international community. And so this is a perfect fit for now, and I'm really, as I said, I feel honored to be doing it. I'm motivated by it. I think it's part of who we are as a state, and I'm, I'm so impressed by and grateful to all the Vermonters I see every day stepping up to support this community. Okay. Molly Gray, she's the executive director of the Vermont Afghan Alliance. She is the former lieutenant governor, candidate for Congress. Uh, international aid worker, and so much more. Um, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to hear from you, and uh, best of luck. See you down the road. Thanks, Kevin. Molly Gray, Executive Director of the Vermont Afghan Alliance. Uh, she gave you the email. Uh, you can just Google them, and don't you love the fact that you can just be in Vermont, and Molly Gray, the former lieutenant governor, can say, just call me on the phone. And I'll talk to you about ways that you can volunteer. Uh, it's not just money that they need, although they do need uh, your contributions. Uh, they need people to come and volunteer, to drive people to appointments, to teach driving, to just sit with them and talk about what it's like to come to uh, from a, a place like Afghanistan to Vermont. So lots of need out there, and we're grateful to Molly for coming on the show. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And I think we have a caller on the line uh, in the wake of Molly Gray talking to us about what she's doing with Afghan uh, immigrants. I think we've got Bill from Moortown on the line. Bill, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you for accepting my phone call. Um, I 
had the opportunity a couple of years ago to go up and spend a couple of hours with Molly Gray through the Veterans Administration in Montpelier when she was still Lieutenant Governor. I was very, very impressed with her, and I wish her the very best in her future endeavors. All right. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much you for the betcha. call. Thank you. Yeah, and it's it, interesting. It's it's um, Molly Gray uh, raised a lot of eyebrows when she took this job at the Vermont Afghan Alliance. Uh, she had been lieutenant governor, coming out of nowhere uh, to win a Democratic primary, and then winning that race, serving for two years, and then uh, upon uh, the decision by Peter Welch to leave the House of Representatives to run for the Senate, uh, Molly immediately declared her candidacy for Congress, and she lost a Democratic primary to the eventual winner, Becca Ballant. And um, so, you know, uh, the, the, the folks in the political uh, world ecosystem of Vermont are, are always, uh, that's why I asked her the question, uh, are always wondering what Molly is going to do next. She is... Uh, she clearly wants to serve in elected office. Um, I don't know what that's going to be, but we have not heard the last of Molly Gray. It just didn't work out. Uh, and boy, you could write books about, and we all talk about it behind the scenes. How did Becca Ballant come out of nowhere to beat Molly Gray in a Democratic primary? Well, uh, I've got some opinions on that. I, I think I think that uh, Becca Ballant ran a great campaign and uh, – there's something about Becca Ballant's personality that makes her a, a very attractive uh, candidate for office. Uh, she's high energy. She's brilliant. She's uh, very good on all the issues. Uh, and she's a, she was a new voice in a, in a political system that was still kind of dominated by Pat Leahy, Peter Welch, and a lot of people who had been around for a long time. And uh, she just, uh, sort of resonated with voters in a way that um, that was new to a lot of people, and she generated a lot of excitement. So, uh, I you know I think there's probably a little bit of a rivalry uh, between Molly Gray and Becca Ballant, but that's probably water under the bridge at the moment. And Molly's going to do this work, and, and then we'll see what happens. You know, but there's a lot of decisions coming up. Phil Scott has to decide whether he's going to run for re-election. Bernie Sanders has to decide whether he's going to run for re-election. And if Bernie Sanders were to, I don't think he is going to retire, but if he were to retire, suddenly there's a United States Senate seat open. Does Becca Ballant run for that seat? Does Molly Gray run for that seat? Uh, if Phil Scott doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, run for re-election, uh, would Molly Gray run for governor? Really good question and an interesting one, I think, um, because uh, the Democratic Party has not fielded uh, a strong candidate in, against Phil Scott in the last few election cycles, and uh, they are not fielding one at the moment. So it's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, what happens next? I could I could see Molly Gray running for governor. I could see her spending the next year working at the Vermont Afghan Alliance, uh, growing her uh, 
con- her Rolodex and her fundraising abilities and uh, just devoting herself to uh, living in Vermont, being here with her family. And then I, you know, Madeline Cunin did it and did it successfully. Uh, I could see if Phil Scott uh, decided not to run for re-election, Molly Gray running for governor. But that's a ways off, and uh, we'll see. Um, but it's I, I can't help but reflect on, and again, we take your calls, 244-1777. I can't help but reflect on the work of the Vermont Afghan Alliance, and if you were working for uh, the government uh, the, of the United States in Afghanistan when we were there for 20-plus years, um, and, you know, if you were there and on our payroll and then suddenly that war is over, we are withdrawing and uh, you face you face uh, death at the hands of the Taliban. Suddenly you find yourself on a plane uh, leaving your family behind or maybe bringing your family with you and coming to the United States. And some of them are in Iowa, and some of them are in uh, New Jersey, and some of them have come to Vermont. And as Molly Gray said, there's some 300 Afghans here. Uh, many of them are in central Vermont. I've dealt with them. I see them on the streets. I see them in uh, uh, struggling to find housing. And um, and I think we are. I think a lot of us. I talked about my my buddy Steve Klein, who is. Uh, really focused on finding them housing um, and all the things that come with finding a place to live. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating situation, and we'll keep you updated on it. We've got Alex from Plattsburgh on the line. Alex, uh, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, hi, thank you. I had uh, two points. Uh, one, Becca Ballant uh, took a million dollars in that stolen FTX money, and that's probably why she won the election. And then she refused to give it back. So that was stolen money from taxpayers. And secondly, I don't think it's a good idea to be bringing in unhoused people when you have a housing crisis that's been caused by the government of Vermont. Uh, I don't think that's fair to the poorest Vermonters. And that's who they're always claiming they're trying to help. And bringing in Afghans and other asylum seekers and refugees to a state that has no housing is cruel and unusual punishment for low-income Vermonters. Thank you. Hey, hey, Alex, are, uh, stay on the line if you would. Maybe I lost sure. it, but my Go question ahead. for my question to you would be: I just heard you say that the government of Vermont caused the housing crisis. Can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, just all the government regulation that went into Act Two Fifty, uh, all the programs. Um, I, I think it's pretty hard to look at the housing crisis in Vermont and not bring in the fact that government regulation uh, caused it um, and is continuing to cause it. And then it's being exacerbated now by do-gooders that want to make themselves feel better by using tax money uh, like Molly Gray's doing by getting government grants. She opens up a big office. She's furnishing it. Yes, some money is going to go to help these Afghans, which I think they do need help. But unfortunately, when you don't have the help to give, 
you shouldn't be then lending out other people's money. That's what we call socialism, is when you end up just spending other people's money to make yourself feel better. And that's what we do. There's billions of needy people around the world. And unfortunately, when you're already underwater, you can't help them. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I can see the I can see the tension between uh, you know Vermonters here who are unhoused and struggling to find housing, and then bringing uh, uh, bringing pe- new people to the state. Uh, I, there's tension there, obviously, and the legislature is trying to deal with it. Uh, but we, you're right. We've got a ways to go in finding housing for everyone. Do you think we should, Alex, if you're still there, do you think we should shut down uh, the immigration of Afghans to this state and the country? It has nothing to do with Afghans. It has nothing to do with skin color. Until American taxpayers are taken care of, we don't have the resources. For every Afghan or any asylum seeker or refugee this country takes in, a poor American is kicked to the side. That's just basic economics. It's physics. It's the way things work. And it's unfortunate, but it's reality. And these people that just want to keep, if, if their mothers are, have such open hearts, then go ahead and start an online sign-up sheet where people can commit to giving them housing and giving them money. Now where these people end up where they're wanted and they don't get up, uh, get up uh, hurting the people, the lowest income and the most vulnerable Vermonters. Um, because that's what ends up happening. The rich people stay in their neighborhood, and this stuff, the drug users, the mental illness, and the immigrants get pushed into these crappy neighborhoods, and the poor people deal with it. There you go. Alex, thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, well, there you are. Um, that is the other side of the coin. Uh, it is a it is an uh, a, a, a point of view that is out there, and I'll tell you we deal with this. We talk a lot about this show on sort of the why of a guy like Donald Trump, and uh, and I think Alex is expressing. I wish I could ask him the question. Alex is expressing, I think, that frustration that a lot of Trump voters uh, feel. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to join Bob Nay about all things Washington, D.C. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. WDEV.